Welcome to the Tiny Logic Podcast, where we have conversations with those on the front lines of the tiny house revolution. My name is Adam Garrett Clark. In 2015, I created a $300 a month housing opportunity for myself and five other friends in an off-grid tiny home community in Oakland, California. Since then, tiny homes have taken over my life. This show is for the tiny converted to talk shop and get us all housed. You can find more information about the work of Tiny Logic at tinylogic.ninja. It's not really possible to be involved in a housing action in the Bay Area to go to a conference about housing or a meeting about housing without running into my guest today. Betsy Morris, um, I'm a huge fan. She is an eco-village, tiny home community expert, uh, city planner by training. Uh, She is one of the leaders of the Berkeley chapter of the Great Panthers, and she lives in one of the oldest co-housing communities in the Bay, Berkeley Co-Housing. I first met Betsy in the winter of 2014 uh, when she was hosting uh, a tiny house teach-in on a very wet and rainy winter night. And uh, ever since then, she's really been a a mentor to me and many others in the Bay who are trying to stand up housing communities. This conversation uh, goes about an hour, but um, we cover a ton of ground. It's really a, a tour of what's been going on in housing actions in the Bay Area during the pandemic year. Um, we talk about Native American earthworks and lessons that can be learned um, for current community infrastructure developments. We talk about the power of portable shelter. Um, we talk about Oakland and Berkeley's response to the engorging encampments during the pandemic. Um, and if you stick with it till the end, probably the last 20 minutes, I open up about some of the challenges I had uh, this last year uh, operating a, a tiny home community and get some really practical advice from Betsy about the the thin line between um, group group consensus making and I guess clicky bullying um, and the power dynamics uh, of, of being in a position of power and how to how to deal with that or how to get out of that. Uh, so it's some some really useful stuff. Enjoy. Betsy, it's so awesome to, to talk to you. It's actually probably been over a year since we've talked. Um, it's crazy how, how quickly it went, but um, how, how are you doing? How are you doing with the pandemic, first off? Oh, my gosh, Adam. Uh, you know, uh, Raids and I are so blessed, privileged, whatever you want to call it. We have our little house. We have, you know, enough money and um I'm I'm kind of a hermit. <laughs> so I'm kind of nervous about opening up again and, you know, driving long distances to try to get to meetings because the Zoom uh world has just exploded with opportunities to be part of different campaigns and movements. Uh especially here in 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 Berkeley not not about yeah. tiny homes yet but an amazing it's just an, been an amazing year uh wow. really just an amazing 6 months because we got to travel a little bit uh for the first 4 months um mm-hmm. be with family 
so I don't, this probably isn't part of our coverage, but it, whenever you start to ask what I'm interested in or thinking about, there's, there's a lot more than tiny homes, but that's yeah. definitely lit up recently. And I so. know you're, you're, so, you're so connected to so many uh, organizations and efforts that are happening in the Bay around housing and communities. Um, and I really want to hear it because I, I know we just, you just kind of teased me with some, <laughs> some juicy, juicy stuff that's coming. But, uh, but before we get into that, I, I, I was curious to just like what's happening in your co-housing community. How did you guys navigate the, the pandemic? Because I, I remember coming in, uh, eating with you once. I know you guys have or used to have uh, regular meals, group meals, but how... How has that changed? How's the dynamics changed in the co community? Yeah, in thank you for asking. I uh, we here have always been a little bit insular, and uh, when and protective, you know, uh, uh, not everyone here has the same concerns. I tend to be less less patient sometimes, but essentially, our our we're you know we're about thirty adults, a bunch of the young people had gone off to college and had to come home again. Uh, but basically in March of last year, we uh, stopped common meals. We had an agreement not to use the common house, uh, even though we were just finishing up a whole bunch of seismic, you know, re-renovations that had been quite huge. <laughs> so, um, and we started to have agreements that began to be worked out about you know, even before all the masking protocols came into existence, we sort of set up little little groups of households that were willing to be pods, you know, because some of the elders in our community needed, you know, are typically in and out, you know, various parents, different groups are in and out of each other's homes. And we wanted to make sure that um, everybody, you know, had buddies. So, uh that's that's I don't know if you remember Alice Green, but she's in our pod. Yeah. yeah and so Rains oh. and I have used our podding. Uh, she gets us uh, food uh, at the farmer's markets and all three of us um, are working on this squirrel fund, which is our concept for senior. Uh, what is oh. it? Senior equity into regenerative real estate loans and it's basically where she and how she wants to leave her house as a a, a permanently affordable home uh condominium available to you know low-income people especially people of color peace activists so it's it's been a wonderful time of really getting into her will and issues that face people in their 80s and she's only 79 um, you know, as, so it, it, it's been an education about Medicaid and Medi-Cal, Medicare, things that, wow. uh, yeah. So in I some, you, <laughs> it's been intense. About that. Yeah. yeah, so, but literally there was kind of like an immediate uh, set of agreements that we then nervously enforced or called each other on. But Reigns and I took off, I got to say, we went east to be with his father and sister and mother as she was dying, and she really? passed. She passed. Uh, she passed in in March, just after her 80th birthday, I think. Um, she was she was an artist, and anyone who will go to carolcohen.com <laughs> uh, might is can see her incredible glass uh, 
her glass paintings. She's a glass glass and sculpture artist, and you know I just have to celebrate that. I lucked I lucked in so much when I married into Reigns and his family, yeah. and we we were able to spend a month, almost a month, at uh, the beach, Little Compton, which is a you know one of those little New Englandy beachside communities with no traffic lights, for example. I don't know how many there are. There aren't that many, but Little Compton is is sort of a premier one, um, and and that was a blessing because we and then we drove across country in a in a uh, what do you call those a Sprinter van, a very you know well equipped van of, of someone Rains knew from our Stone Soup community was picking it up sight unseen uh, in near Ithaca, New York, and we had a friend in Ithaca, New York, who was staying with his parents for a little while. And wow. so, you know, it was like a more sociable time. It was an, a very incredible trip. And yeah, and wow. I could go you on. Well, just that one month. No, just that, okay. you know, those four months we were with his his family in Cambridge. His mother died. We were with his father. We went down to Little Compton together as a family to to, you know, weed and garden and, you know, it was very intense. And then Reigns and I had this opportunity to travel across country, which felt safer than an airplane and a hell of a lot more interesting. Yeah. And I will just yeah. – another podcast. Let's talk about Native American ceremonial earthworks. Ah, nice. I am totally okay. turned on to that now and always been interested in archaeology. But what does it say about community and civic – If essentially inter-community uh, cooperation – that these massive earthworks were built, you know, without there being a government or a king or a hierarchy of, as far as we know, of slaves and masters. You know, it, was, it, it says something about what humans do voluntarily uh, out of some organizing spirit. And I love, I, I just, they inspire me. And there, there were, mil- you know, another topic. Did you come across, did <laughs> yeah. you come across that in, while you were out in the Midwest? No, well, well, actually, um, so Reigns' family's in Boston. Um, oh, uh, yeah, Boston, Cambridge, and uh, Rhode Island. So, um, okay. so actually, I've, I've been interested in uh, prehistoric civilization forever, uh, you know, uh, if you really want to dive into this. And when I went to planning school, I picked up that and studied a little bit, you know, special papers and whatnot about ancient yeah. civilizations. And then um, – a few years ago, I got totally addicted to Time Team, which is an English, uh, UK archaeology thing. And I don't know, I, I guess I just heard about mounds in Ohio somewhere when I was searching for American prehistory, you know, North American continent prehistory. And, okay. uh, yeah. So, honestly, mention, this trip, this, this yeah. trip was partly inspired by the fact that when Rain said, well, would you want to travel? I'm like, well, the only thing I'm really interested in seeing are these mounds in Ohio. And since then, since then, I've discovered there's at least 100,000 estimate, you know, that currently still exist from pre-European colonial settlement all across the Midwest and probably and the South. So, you know, there's like 15 states with hundreds if not thousands of these ceremonial mounds and earthworks but huh. it's pretty did you mention there was a, yep. you there was a podcast uh, 
That's about that? No, I said, hey, maybe we could do a podcast. Oh, uh, <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about that. I was just on the uh, one of the Ohlone uh, tribes' websites mm-hmm. trying to understand how to properly acknowledge uh, and uh, acknowledge that we're on their land uh, and uh, do the right protocols uh, when we're in the, in the space. Yeah which is something I've, I've been, like, vaguely aware of. And, and, and I mean, I understand the, the, the historical need, yeah. uh, but, but I haven't really got my head around what the proper protocols all are. But I was in this uh, uh, Zoom uh, meeting with it's called the NorCal Resiliency Hub. Oh, yeah. Hub. Yeah, Susan and, and, and Veronica. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And everybody was, you know, referencing yeah. what, what territory they were they were on and it was pretty cool. There, there's a yeah. site there's a site called something like Native Lands that mm-hmm. if you enter like a zip code or a city name, <laughs> it'll tell you. Mm-hmm. It'll tell you to the best of whatever current archaeological or you know, contemporary cultural claimants. Yeah. You know, it'll tell you that. And and honestly, uh I it's another subject. It's a tender subject to me because you know, displacement, there's sort of this idea that everybody was displaced by, by uh, you know, the, 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 the conquistadors or the colonial settlers. And yet those peoples, to the best of our knowledge, were my knowledge, you know, and I do read up on these things to, to understand, you know, and, 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 and people were moving around. So the, uh, the, the, uh, 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 the family grouping of the Ohlone that were here might might or might not have been the Chichonye, if I understand that right. In fact, I'm probably not saying might have might or might not been that, but they that particular the group that we know was here like 500 years ago, or and claims you know representation and uh, they replaced uh, the the Essenes according to the maps that I've seen. Uh, and and the Essene were also part of the the Ohlone, and the Ohlone is these family groups. Like it wasn't, you know, organized to the best of our knowledge into like larger units of tribe or clan or 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 nation, you know, like the Iroquois or something like that. So, we, yeah, California for such an amazingly beautiful and resource-rich area. It it has it has some ceremonial earthworks or at least unattributable earthworks, but I will say that you know the shell mounds were earthworks and were part of the way you could identify where people were if you were paddling in the in the in the bay, you know, and and most of the nationally the the nationally uh, continentally. <laughs> um, the, uh, the the these earthworks mounds and 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 rings and wood hinges and and uh, like animal uh, sculptures in this in this cut out of a, a hillside or built up on a hillside or ceremonial walkways it was very much like what what we're finding out about Stonehenge that it that Stonehenge was just like the last little blip of a you know maybe three thousand to five thousand year history of and, and many square miles of ceremonial earthworks in that particular part of, of England, what's now England, but also 
So, but also in you know other parts of of of, of Europe and Africa, they're finding too. You know, it was just an impulse. It was an impulse to do this stuff. We 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 want to humans. We're manipulating the environment, you know, to the best of our ability with stone axes and baskets. Uh, long before uh, it became, uh, you know, big monumental symbols of death of the or immortality of the pharaohs or what have you. Uh, and I right. just love that. It boggles my mind. So coming back well, here, yeah, yeah. It, it's we'll have to do that podcast yeah. at some point. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> the and, rivers, yeah. yeah, the rivers is what I meant to get at. That in North America, uh, the river system of the Ohio River and tributaries of the Mississippi, that, that's where the bulk, all the way up to the edges of the Great Lakes, uh, uh, that's where you see, you know, these earthworks. So it makes sense that shell mounds had that, had at least some of them were large enough to be a visible beacon if you were coming down the Sacramento River and coming into the bay. Yeah, that's, cool. that's, that's interesting. I, I, I was like, I'm curious to hear more about how um, how we can learn from the, the the methods and the models for for constructing those earthworks, uh, and how we could we could do that in projects that are happening now. Beautiful. Uh, where you know, there's a lot of uh, like we were kind of talking about. Um, well, yeah, in the, the tiny home tiny home community space or eco village yep. space, right? There's a lot yep. of development that needs to happen, and and how does it happen uh, in a uh, I guess flat hierarchical way or like grassroots way rather than yeah. top down, which yeah. and, I, and I found in my experiences, you know, it's a lot more efficient to do top down, but then it gets messy and dramatic and complicated. Yeah. It's not totally supported by everybody. I love that. Thank you, Adam, for bringing us into the present. I uh, absolutely think there's lessons to be explored. Um, and one of the important ones, the earthworks themselves were meant to be permanent as best as, you know, you can be permanent at that time. And th- these earthworks would have would have were around for thousands of years, <laughs> you know, some of them only just maybe uh, 100 years uh, before the Spanish made their way up. Um, and uh, so so let me just try to bring what I think is important forward, because. The the ones, um, you know, I use the term community, but you could say grassroots. You use that term. But it's kind of like what are folks capable of doing operating voluntarily out of whatever mutual benefit uh, they see in creating these civic monuments? And, and, and But they weren't just monuments in the sense of special occasion locations. They uh, – uh, they were often surrounded by villages and here in the villages made out of wood, you know, uh, made out of materials uh, that that disappear. And so we don't have as good of a record of how people but how people were living in in volumes. And certainly in California, it was fairly small groupings. We never got the three thousand to ten thousand to one hundred thousand people of the, the uh, some of the later urban complexes in North America. But here, what I thought was beautiful, uh, you know, Malcolm um, Margolin uh, and uh, a little bit from Karina Gould uh, gave me some information 
when um, we're having this, for me, a painful argument about housing development, uh, affordable housing, low-income housing in West Berkeley versus keeping the ground or the parking lot <laughs> vacant so that the earth mound and the and the pond that was underneath would be undisturbed so that the you know the the former berkeley shell mound which is about 20 feet by 10 feet you know it's it looks like a, a snowplow debris on the side of the <laughs> the spengers parking lot next to the to the to the frontage road there to east shore highway anyway the the Ohlone lived in reed um when they were in the uh this flatland you know the the coastal area to the best of my knowledge, made reed, made everything out of reeds. <laughs> you know, uh, the shell mound itself wasn't made out of reeds, but they would have small, uh, you know, tents or essentially roofed structures that um, you could pick up and carry. You know, and if it burned, well, it might have burned. You know, but it was made out of reeds, and that concept of portable shelter, you know, uh, uh, portable shelter is is a piece of that not now i don't think they necessarily carried these shelters up into the hills when they had their seasonal you know migrations and food harvest i don't know that part but this concept i mean this is how the human the human race might have occupied caves for you know millenniums so that archaeologists can find evidence but mostly we had movable shelters you know right uh and yeah you're Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and that's what we, part of our housing crisis, and there's bigger issues, but part of it is that we've destroyed our city governments and single-family neighborhood protective advocates have eliminated low-cost shelter, especially portable shelter. So it's, you know, it's fear of the strangers, fear that people who are, this is my take. I mean, there's racism and there's been also perennial fear of the stable Farmers versus the mobile nomadic herders, you know. You can, right. yeah. You, yeah. You, I mean, you're reminding me of uh, me and Janet, my partner, were uh, in in the Mojave Desert, and we were researching Hogan's, which is oh, the, Navajo. the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Navajo housing form, and they they would erect them in a day. Uh, what a novel concept! Really, build a house in a day. Yeah. Know? And um, but they're not. Yeah, and, and I had to. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, 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 I didn't realize it was so uh, easy to put up. I mean, I assume there's a group. It's a rammed earth structure, so it's not portable. But but I didn't yeah, realize I how easy it was I to put up. different versions of it. Oh, okay. Uh, like, I was seeing some that were, you know, kind of look like log, you, you could call them like a log cabin. Uh-huh. Or, um, so it was like, you know, branches, or then there's like modern versions of it where it was more like, like two by four type construction. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, there would be like a gathering of materials and definitely it would be a, a, a group effort to mm-hmm. do it in a day. So it might be like two days, but, um, yeah, it was like just yeah. the concept like you were touching yeah. on, like housing doesn't have to be such a big, you know, years long, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars and project. Eight, yeah, yeah. And, uh, absolutely. And, and, and so calling us back to uh, a simpler housing stock to, uh, uh, you know, if we want to talk about the human right to shelter, that's got to include the ability to build your own shelter or build it with uh, 
you know, people who are helping you because you're helping them. And that's, that's a beautiful remembrance. So, you know, we might not think of SROs or trailer parks, you know, RV parks, uh, live aboard boats. You know, we might not think of those as nomadic forms of housing, but the truth is we've, we will, you know, you either have to pay an arm and a leg to stay in a motel or hotel, which gets built with very permanent materials, you know, or you live in a big high rise and I, please, I am a big advocate. I spend a lot of time in the affordable housing and low income housing realm. So this is not to, we do need to build more permanent housing in California, especially for, you know, low, very low people. But there, there's, I think people at all spectrum of the income level and especially people who are currently living in tents or just a blanket on the sidewalk that, um, you know, there's dignity in being um, part of a community. Not everyone's ready to be living with others, but to have a group of people who are watching your back and yeah. and even being able to pick up that community and move it from one location to another safely uh, is so important. So even people in tents can, uh, and definitely here in Berkeley, there's several there's several uh, now uh, communities that have been from one location to another. They basically were chased, you know, because it's illegal. <laughs> so it's very interesting to see how certain rights of nomadic, you know, we call them a, a homeless, and there's a whole bunch of stigma associated with it. But we could call it, at least some people, this would be a voluntary way of life. You put your yeah. you put your time and your resources into relationships or a business. You're not you're not paying it out to a landlord or, you know, or there's so many reasons why I think opening up the tiny home world is much bigger than just, oh, a hundred thousand dollar artisanal exquisite craftsmanship, even though those are gorgeous and amazing art art objects. You know, it's it's the principle, I think, of both portable housing, portable shelter, but with uh, surrounding community. Uh, and uh, mutual aid, and then you have chances for individual artistry and all that. So hey, hey, yeah. just here I am pontificating. Have you seen? <laughs> have you seen the opening of the Youth Spirit Artworks uh, Youth Village? I have not. I've seen some pictures, uh, but I haven't they, been it, there in person yet. So the first, What's going on with that? well, the you know, I think it was 2016 when I first started going to meetings and meeting other locals uh, through Youth Spirit Artworks here in Berkeley. And yeah. and um, twenty, it's going to only hold 22 youth. I have to say it's a small community, but about right. They were yeah. they were given a lease um, out at the Hagenberger, is it Hagenberger Road near the old um, Home Depot yeah. or is it Kmart or something? So they have like yeah. three, they have three acres, which is a lot of space for, 22 youth but they're moving in today and they've taken it's uh they've taken they have gotten i i I just came up with the takes a village to create a village because uh youth spirit organized churches organized so many people uh to come in and to um help build these uh, tiny homes over the course of i think two and a half years um 
and then to uh, build and then to build planters and then use spirit artworks. This is what this is Sally Pastor Sally's you know vision is that art art is a spiritual creative healing energy. So she she had uh, just a bucket loads of I think young artists uh, Berkeley Oakland wherever come and paint every single house every oh, yeah, single. I saw. And the and the the, the and the fences the fences the fence surrounding this community which makes it a, you know a place a there there where you come home to it's not just one home and a, and a lock it's a community with some privacy um, right next to the freeway uh, and so it's it's just a fantabulous uh, colorful explosion. Um, yeah, I gotta check it out. I was, I was, and and they they got a donated yurt for a kitchen, and I'm like green with envy, you know, because this is <laughs> this is what uh, eco villages uh, of you know affluent yeah. urban, not affluent, but you know urban dreamers who go out to start an eco village. This is aspirational, you know, your yurt yeah. in the country. So yep. it's fantastic. Yeah. It's so yeah. fantastic. Go to their Facebook page. Yeah. The, the photos. Anyway, they're moving in today, the first group of, awesome. of youth. And and a lot of people, you know, helped decorate the rooms. I would have thought it might be a little more like let the youth do it. But there's a whole community of people who are welcoming and supporting these these young adults. Yeah, that's been a long project in the making. And I yep. remember when they, they had the space by Omega Salvage and then the it got shut down by NIMBY stuff. And that was a different community. That was a different community. That's the those. That wasn't uh, was, Spirit Artworks. N- no, I, they've Pretty been sure they've been on Alcatraz uh, uh, for as long as I know. Uh, there was a like a shipping container. In fact, I think it's called the shipyard or something. There was a group of people in the former. Like across the street from the former crucible near Urban Ore. Well, you know what? Who knows? There have been many experiments. Uh, so, but I thought those yeah, were well, artists. I, mean, I thought those sure. were, you know, wh- white artists who could be housed. But yeah, tell uh, me more. Well, what did you think that yeah, was? Yeah, yeah. I, I could be wrong. I, I had a buddy. My buddy JR was working with Sally. That oh, okay. Day. Okay. So I was following. I was following their their journey, and I. Uh, yeah, they had they had that lined up right by Omega Salvage. Oh, oh. Next to Omega Salvage. Sa- then, uh, San Pablo uh, Avenue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. yeah that was yeah. Uh, Omega Salvage. Sorry, I misheard. Yeah. I thought you Urban Ore. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Hey, you know what that is now, that site? Who bought that site? It is, it's the future home of Berkeley Moshav, the second co-housing community ever. Oh. Full scale, full scale co-housing community in Berkeley after Berkeley co-housing, you know, and uh, they bought that land after the owner, you know, deal pulled the plug on on uh, on YSA. uh, And it's going to be a permanent co-housing community with uh, people who want to kind of honor Jewish culture and spiritual life. And they're going to have affordable units. You know, they didn't try to slip out of the affordable unit requirements. So I'm proud oh, of them for okay. that. I thought you said portable for a second. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you no. Affordable. 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 Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's a shame it couldn't have been used Spirit Artworks for the five years or four years in between yeah. 
you know, anything else getting built there. So, but I'm, yeah. you know, we welcome the, you know, it's great to have another intentional community like that in Berkeley with, 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 yeah. that's going to have a foundation. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So what else, what else is, what else are you seeing? What's, what, give me the, well, give me the tour of what's happening. What's, what's yeah. What's yeah. With the, with the here, there, uh, camp on that Oh, part? oh, you know, so I feel very much like, here that I yeah three of the leaders and co-founders or or uh, early leaders and and co-founders of here of what first they came for the homeless which was the you know conscious the the element that ended up with um creating here their camp uh three of those leaders have died and not not from covid they all died last winter or spring mike Mike Zint, who oh, he passed away. He, you wow. know, he was always kind of frail, and yeah. he he had housing, but it was a truly crappy, you know, yeah. vow, he in in San Leandro or someplace like that that just did not just ruined his health was already bad, but it ruined him. Yeah. He he died. He died in January, wow. I think. Very very yeah. sad. And then um, and then very quickly at the end of like. June, sometime in June, like literally a week after I got back to Berkeley, Clark Sullivan died. He 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 was the person I knew best uh, from the Landless People's Alliance um, and the Here There camp. He was only in his fifties. Um, um, yeah, it, it, it's just he. Yeah, he also. And then Mike Lee, who was you know, I call these three guys the Wildcats. You know. <laughs> Uh, Mike Zent was a very polished speaker and very kind of spiritually, I don't know, reflective man. You know, he knew yeah. he knew how to organize uh, his other people, and he was just a and 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 Clark and Mike Lee were more feisty and argumentative, and you know, but um, Mike Lee, yeah. So these are like were like three activists, you know, who saw their choice of being in a camp. Uh, whether they were housed or not housed, they they were they were among the people who moved 17 times here in Berkeley. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, the wow. the times. first they came for the homeless, um, uh, came to Berkeley, a small group because the San Francisco police, you know, were getting meaner, um, and they came to Berkeley, uh, and they started to be part of the I don't know if they were part of the Occupy camps tents. Mm. Yeah, but right after that Occupy movement, because that was a very inspirational movement. Yeah. Um, but after that, they, these political camps uh, popped up, and the real the real pivot. I'll just say this: the real pivot is when the people who wanted to save the Berkeley Post Office mm-hmm. uh, somehow got into a conversation, or at least one or two of them. J.P. Masser uh, was one in conversation, and Mike Lee and Mike Zint camped out at the Berkeley post office for eight months. Wow. Like they lived there night and day so that they're the political signs to save the post office and to stop the sale of the post office to a private, you know, hotel company or whatever that they, they, that, that relationship meant that there were people who were now sympathetic to what the, these homeless activists were doing. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's community, it's relationship building where people now 
yeah, can be allies. And, and I feel like that made a huge, you know, laid a huge foundation for when this uh, community of political minded campers would create a space where other homeless people who didn't necessarily have a political concept, but just needed safe space. So 17 different encampments around the city got chased out every time. Um, but awareness grew and built. And so when they landed, well, this again is some years ago, several years ago now, when they landed at the BART near right, the Ashby Adeline, Bart. yeah, Ashby BART. No, uh, further down, it's actually a few, uh, like half a mile from the Ashby BART at the Adeline, it's the Oakland-Berkeley city border. And uh, right, there's, right, right, there's right, a big yeah. sculpture yeah. that says here, there, and that's on the Oakland right. side. So that's how the name came about. But anyway, and even after they got chased off BART land, they ended up on this little strip of land in Berkeley that's sort of between the sidewalk and the and the road. And neighbors started supporting them. Miss Ritchie, right. Miss Ritchie Smith, yeah. went over there and sort of and so they their their guidelines for living together became what those good neighbor agreements. Like, okay, we're going to keep our place orderly and clean. And uh, we're not going to piss off Miss Ritchie and Miss Ritchie and Margie Wilkinson are going to pass the hat among neighbors and get us a, a porta potty, you know. And that became a precedent that the city then paid for that porta potty. Not, right. ju- not. It still had to be, you know, bird dogged, watchdogged. But now in COVID, that even though the city council was kicking and screaming for years. Now every camp, uh, among, there's like 30 hand-washing stations and I think over a dozen bathrooms, porta-potties or permanent bathrooms that are now available for people living outside because they're still living outside. And, and, you know, thank God for the CDC. So there's a lot more. I, I mean, if I, so people still get chased around, but co- under COVID, it's shelter in place. And it turns out having your own little tent, you know, or your own vehicle is a lot safer than the shelters or the yeah. dormitories, you know, the kind of uh, discipline by making it unpleasant, you know. Right, and I think right. city council slowly, slowly, slowly is kind of getting this idea of um, uh, client-centered. That's as close as Berkeley has come to it, client-centered uh, contractors, uh you know, we're still not there yet, but it, it, it means who who manages and how they manage man, matters. So I think of it as progress. Other people are yeah. still still hoping. Um, yeah, and I, I heard that the same same on the Oakland side, they are not uh, shutting down any any encampments in their, uh, during the, the pandemic or yep. shelter in place. Yep. Um, and so and yeah. yeah. So here's the thing. At the same time, Oakland City Council uh, mm-hmm. passed uh, what I'm very biasedly <laughs> understanding to be uh, an ordinance that says nobody can camp or vehicle anywhere near a school or a church or a residential single-family homes or uh, uh, retail or, you know, so there's like 1% of the entire city where you can – safely i'm putting that in quotes um (laughs) you can you can camp uh and and of course it's the absolute worst most toxic noisy barren 
uh, uh, grounds under BART in the freeway. And, 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 and I will say this, there are, there's just, um, you know, Oakland's a lot bigger than us, but, uh, you know, when predators, predators come and take advantage of weaker people, you have violence, drugs, prostitution, rape, shit goes on. And until we have an actual role for camps that are recognized and can be, you know, gated or uh, secured, you know, until we have that, we're not, we can't rest, you know, like that's just, that's just somebody's um, worst case nightmare. And it's not like everybody who's homeless is a predator by any means. But when we just allow bullying and, 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 and predation to go on, which is kind of how our society has worked, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter has risen up before me even more, this kind of like separate and definitely not equal predator relations that we permit. And it's not just about race. Don't get, don't, please don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, I'll just say one of the other issues I've gone in deeply in the last six months is um, uh, quality of life in senior affordable housing. So, okay. so uh, I just found out that um, bullying and harassment is illegal under the Fair Housing Act. And so that even communities uh, here in Berkeley that where, you know, you've got frail elders and it's not like aggression or violence uh, totally disappears in your older age. So, and, but there's also management companies that keep things in line for their owners by bullying. And there's a difference of quality, you know, in how safe people feel to leave their apartment. So I'll just stop and say to me, this issue of, you know, you know, it's how do we treat each other? It's everywhere. And, 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 and whether it's in a homeless camp or, or a, a senior highways supposedly run by a, a corporatized nonprofit that is trying to extract money out of their residents. It's going on, and we, it's a culture, it's a cultural choice. It's not just about making money off people. It's also about right. what kind of environment. When you have that power, what kind of environment are you supporting among the people yeah. who depend on you, the resource you're providing? So it's all. Yeah. So, that's, so, that's um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Do you want to go back to tiny homes? Um, cause honestly, honestly, I haven't been thinking that much about them until the last week, but, but the progress yeah. in the last week is pretty amazing. So, um, yeah. yeah. So you, um, what could I speak to? Um, yeah. So, so here on the one hand, the city of Oakland passed this pretty, I think it's got to be discarded or, and it's definitely up for a lawsuit now that, uh, what is it, Boise versus Martin or Martin versus Boise? Martin versus Boise has been decided. Mm. And that is the, the lawsuit that essentially now establishes, I might be appealed, I don't, I don't know, but I think they exhausted their appeals, I could be wrong. Anyway, the lawsuit says if a city or a county does not have enough shelter beds or places where people who are unhoused can sleep, then, uh, you know, Americans, <laughs> humans have the right to sleep on public land and create. And that's the foundation for the uh, stabilizing the informal tent cities that already exist. 
Uh, and it's okay. also a foundation for why the city can no longer just, or the public, or Caltrans, or, you know, the county, right. whatever, can't just sweep people away or and even take their belongings so they're forced to go somewhere else. They can't do that unless they can show there's enough other alternatives for them. And, of course, so that was, we're not near that. that. Just, <laughs> that was just decided uh, recently because I thought I heard about that case. I guess that was I know. appealed and it just, it just came to a final verdict recently. Well, I thought it had been resolved and lost a, a year uh-huh. or so ago, um, but I didn't track it. And then just somehow it popped up on a news feed, you know. So I've got to go look and see. But it sounded literally like it was resolved at last in favor of the sort of human housing as a human yeah. right and the, right. the the fact that cities can no longer hoard land yeah. in order to keep it safe for, you know, homeowners, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. and I landlords. You mentioned about power dynamics. Uh, mm-hmm. There was an article uh, recently in the New York Times about um, uh, like a, a Bronx nonprofit uh, run by a guy who was formerly homeless and had a, a, a good backstory. Uh, got a bunch of contracts with, with New York to provide shelter housing in various forms, and they and I learned in that 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 New York has a mandate where you have to provide. Uh, a bed for for every every homeless person. So you can't. They 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 they're obligated legally to invest in the shelter infrastructure, which maybe that's not the best thing. But it's it's interesting that like we don't have that in in our in our California, you know, in San Francisco and Oakland and in, in the Bay Area cities. And if we did, that might that might force some uh, some more investment in in, in beds. Um, and maybe they would be better not to be shelter beds, uh, but but maybe these, these so, cabin communities and townhome communities. Yeah. The other thing about the article was was that the guy, the guy with the, the big story who got a bunch of the contracts, uh, turned out to be kind of like a Harvey Weinstein. And oh, yeah, I read that. Women yeah. That yeah. To, yeah. His power and you know basically yeah. like I'm giving you yeah. housing and then I'm gonna ask for sexual favors. So, right. Yeah. It's, that was that was that was uh it's really good that it came out. I just wish there hadn't been pain involved in realizing that you can't just like hand things off to individuals because I feel like even some of the best people eventually go crazy by having so much power. responsibility and power and deference, but it's also you know it might start as uh, i mean look at jim jones uh you know he did a lot yeah. of good. I mean, in the sense that he brought people together, and I've met people who like are still mourning the the community connections, uh, black and white, that they lost when you know right. he went crazy right. and killed off half their loved ones. Um, do you know some? You know some people from that community? Do you know Adam? Every November there is a reunion, uh, a very painful reunion at a one of the Oakland Hills uh, cemeteries. And there's oh, a reunion wow. because, um, I mean, the, 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 the People's Temple community existed outside of Oakland and San Francisco, but that's where it ended up in its last days yeah. before going to Belize. And so there's family members who are still here who come yeah. together 
and community members. And uh, yeah, I actually there's a wonderful couple of books um, about it. Uh, I don't I don't know anyone personally in the Oakland community who's part of it, but you could find out. It's yeah. you know it's it's a pretty you know it's a two sided story. It's not just a story of abuse of power by a cult figure. <laughs> You know, that's the horrible end of it. Yeah, go on. Right. You know, I remember watching some documentaries about it, and Mm -hmm. and, and definitely there was a lot of really awesome stuff. Like you said, uh, races coming together in the 60s uh, in the beginning. And uh, I remember also that the um, his son and a a bunch of people on the basketball team got out of the the mass suicide because they were away at a basketball game. And I, yeah. uh, I was at a natural building workshop in Northern California years ago, and one of the women there was, uh, we gave a car, me and my friend gave a, we carpooled with her back to the city, and she was dating the his grandson. Oh, was, <laughs> uh, wow. In, in the sunset. Wow. Um, which is interesting. Well, but, uh, uh yeah, I'll just say that um, Laura Cole, K-O-H-L, is the author of, uh, I think, Jonestown Survivor. She she was like a serial communitarian. She's she's a white woman um, who met her husband through Synanon, which she joined, which is another community that kind of ended up with a, a cult, with a, 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 an overpowered, paranoid, you know, leader. Um, but... Uh, you know, they were they were sharing ink. There were, I don't know, a thousand people or something up and down the coast of California sharing money and houses and businesses and vehicles and recovering from drugs and alcohol uh, influence. So it's just it's just interesting. You know, she she yeah. she wrote the book Jonestown Survivor, and she was also sent out of town with the uh, with a crew to go get some supplies so there was about I think two dozen people who who were out of town, and you know she never knew if Jim Jones like sent them out of town intentionally, you know, knowing that some shit was going to go down with the um, the California uh, delegation, the the congressman. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, but we're we're going afield. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're bringing me. You're bringing me um, to kind of a, a, a tender spot, actually. Oh. I, I would love to get get some advice from you because I know you you study communities, uh, different models, and have lived in a co-housing community for a long time, and other ones I, I feel like I remember before that. So uh, this, you know, this last year was really tough mm. uh, in our tiny home community in West Oakland. Um, I mean, first off, we we shut down. We had to shut down bus patch slash the wheelhouse at the beginning of the year, and that was kind of decided before the pandemic was the shelter in place was announced. Um, but then the shutdown was like a three month process that happened in the first months of the pandemic, and and we shut down because there was just too much uh, toxic fighting and no real way mm. mechanism for people to come together. Mm. And, uh, and we also had neighbors uh, breathing down our neck and code enforcement and some infrastructure issues. But uh, there was a lesson there. And then a similar sort of lesson was coming from what was happening at the tiny home community that I lived in. Um, and there was a lot of toxic 
drama that that popped up over mm. the years, especially mm. around the time of the fires, uh, mm. and it, it seemed like you know the the people the discomfort uh, was was bringing out the worst in people. Mm. And I remember last like about a month or so ago talking to Veronica and John uh, from the founders of the place, mm-hmm. and they they had some similar flare ups of of drama. Uh, this last year, and um, John kind of mentioned, uh, you know, a takeaway that I also had, which was like, this uh, community governance thing has its limits. Like, there's a flip side to it. I, I, it's kind of been my takeaway. My battles have been, in both cases, about people sort of not thinking about the bigger picture of the space and acting in their own self-interest to, say, limit the amount of spaces that we could have, which would limit the amount of income or uh, drain the, the, the reserve account. Um, and so somebody like me who's thinking about the bigger picture of the administration of a space is pushing back, saying, hey, we need X amount of people and, and wanting to just uh, kind of be more top-down uh, and less um, democratic, I guess, in some of the decision-making because it just – can devolve into kind of personal politics, I guess. Mm. So I don't know what your thoughts are, are there. I mean, there's obviously a lot of benefits on the other side, but that's been kind of a, a thinking. And, and, and then accusations of, hey, you're, you're, you've got power and you're, you're pushing your weight around. Yeah. That have been thrown at me. Uh, yeah. You know, this last year. This is so important. And uh, as painful as it is, if it doesn't surface and become a, understood by people that we're watching this kind of stuff unfold, that uh, that it's created by how we act and behave. It's not created by some greater power. I mean, there is structural power dynamics and conflict that's statist, but that this comes from our own, you know, divided selves or whatever we want to say. Anyway, I think it's so important and that it's a – kind of evolutionary makes it sound too uh you know could either be woo woo or 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 so long term like what's a million years no this is something we have to learn and 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 become aware of um and sometimes communities and relationships die in the process hopefully no human being dies but that happens you know we can imagine that has happened in human history um um, but, uh, and, and you could even call policing kind of a example of one part of a community rejecting another part of a community and deciding we're going to treat everyone, uh, who's black or everyone who's nomadic, a stranger to town, we're going to treat them like a dangerous other, you know? So, right. but more to the point, when we are living and sharing space, then, um, you know, there's so on a very grand level, like earth sharing, like how do we actually inhabit the earth and not attack each other? Uh, and, 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 and it's also at a very personal level, you know, man, it, learning to man, to see our emotions. Uh, it's part of growing up and learning how to deal with uh, anger. Um, you know, kids can see alternative ways of dealing with differences or they can learn uh, a different message, you know, like at a very basic level, how do you manage stress? Do you take it out on other people 
do you attack your own body, you know, with, you know, you know what I mean, self-harming kind of things. And we have to learn. I, th- I believe we have to learn, and we learn it in the family. And if we don't learn it in the family, then we learn it somewhere else. Um, and some of us are lucky enough to either temperamentally uh, or otherwise, um, you know, find ways to be conscious and respectful of differences without triggering, you know, hostility. I'm still, you know, I don't have that skill. I think, and, uh, you know, I mean, or I learned that skill. Just to bear down a little bit more on that that topic. Let me me get a little more practical and, and like, how are people dealing with it? I could definitely tell you some stories and how they're being dealt with right now. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. And real quick, just, like, to, to add to later on there, I found that it seems like there, well, well, one big takeaway for me was like there was just a lack of uh, a concrete system of of governance in both communities, yeah. and that was that was a failure. Uh, and um, and uh, and I was positioned as the in one case as the administrator, um, in another case as kind of like the the master tenant or the landlord, mm-hmm. because I'm cl- in, in both cases, I, I was collecting the rent. And, and yep. so uh, in this climate, it's just so easy to be pinned down. And, well, it's, everybody loves to hate the landlord right now, probably always, and, and usually for good reasons. And so I was in that position, and, it, and I struggled to get out of that position. And I get I get that uh, setting up a more um, flat hierarchy, I guess, can, can get around that. But uh, there isn't the, the institutional continuity there, and there's the there's the reality of like responsibility uh, to the landlord or to the city or um, uh, to, for safety and that sort of thing. Yeah, and that that seems to make sense to have someone or someone a group of people bottom lining that. So. Uh, yeah, that's what I've been struggling with. Yeah, yeah. Where the answers are there to, well, to navigate it. Yeah. I was definitely feel like I was scapegoated many times for many. every bad thing that happened. And, yep, uh, and yep. not always did I keep my, my cool, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I, 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 um, I admire, you know, I've always admired your ability to, to walk that line of being an innovator, take some chances, set something up that other people can benefit from. Um, and be the bottom liner. I mean, that's that's a great skill in itself. And then to be aware of the dynamics. So I'll I'll just cut and say, um, let's see. There's a bunch of things. So one is I'm sorry that it got so painful for you because definitely a certain amount of thick skin or loving compassion or whatever combination of ability not to to uh, explode or you know or hide, which are certainly elements of how I've dealt with conflict. Um, but it's, but I honestly think, um, if you set up some kind of conversation, decision making process involving money among a group of people, like let's say everybody five bucks, it could be as little as five bucks a month, but some portion of the rent is not just your little piece of land, but goes into a kitty that then people have to sit and have conversations about how to spend it. And that that has a certain dry run capacity to build a sense of we 
that um, in a very practical way that just sharing a house with a landlord or sharing a master tenant. I mean, this is the example that I've come up with in my first long-term community that I thought made a glue for us that allowed us to to navigate uh, dicier situations later. You know, like one of our members, we, we threw in five bucks a week in a kitty and then had started to share, you know, staples. I mean, it was like a tiny thing, but um, it allowed us to tolerate, well, someone moved in who was seemed to be stealing money from the kitty, <laughs> you know, and producing really cheap meals and bragging about it. And we're like, where's the money going? And we also survived people going one woman, you know, having a mental uh, breakdown, having to be, well, we chose to have her hospitalized and said, no, she can't come back. And the ability to say no uh, in a in a group setting without becoming bullies, because that, that's the flip side. You know, people can not realize how they're bullying each other. And, uh, you know, I'd say even here at Ber- in my community here, we – there's there's sometimes a a pressure that's more like a high school peer pressure, not mm. not what you know, and it's partly the stress of COVID has yeah. accentuated certain people's fears, and eventually even you know we're not we're not harming each other, but it was like, you know, I can't deal with your fear, I cannot deal with more you know more of your fears. I need to have X. So even the right. most patient and inclusive and skilled, emotionally skilled person in our community actually had, for the first time, an honest, like, I can't take anymore if you're just going to talk about, you know, as opposed to accepting everything and making everything right. So that's a very, that's a lower cost. But that idea that it matters enough that you see how your interests and the community, the the betterment of the whole. And sometimes the whole needs you to go away. Sometimes you need to go away. Not you personally, Adam, but, you know, there's times yeah. when it's time to leave. I, I'll, I'll just say by way of sympathy, I think there are methods and models, you know, sociocracy or just setting up like here, their camp. Uh, you know, they have a set of agreements about what's going on there. And if it starts to get abused too much, uh, enough people know that the the gig is up, you know, like about I don't don't know all of their agreements, but, you know, there's been a lot of tension over some of them. Um, Lack of participation or using, you know, pot, you know, recreationally in such a way that it's like kind of dominating the common space. I don't know. I don't know what the issues, but they still survive. And they, as a group, are willing, as painful as it is, to say, you've got to go, dude, or woman, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they that's can. Another, that's another juicy one. I mean, how do you, how have you dealt with that? Because then you're running up against tenant uh, protections, which are very strong in, in our open yeah. climate. Uh, well, I okay. mean, I, I, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll say this. So, um when I lived in a housing cooperative, after I moved out, uh, it's a very low income, you know what I mean? But they, they were well organized and governed and had reserves. They paid one member to leave. Uh, mm. And he's much happier now, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and he managed to find another place to live. In another case, um, so this was before the lockdown, way before. So, 
but I just the other day, there's a new live work cooperative, new only in the sense, do you know Shade Tree? They, they're, they, were, they were a group of people renting this industrial ramshackle collection of warehousey, you know, warehousey type corrugated metal buildings near Brooklyn Basin. Yeah? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Kelsey, I think you're on mute or something. Oh, I sure did. Where did I leave off? I was asking if you knew Shade Tree, which is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah about. Yeah, four, to describe it. Yeah, so. I just got, Reigns and I uh, just caught up with the kind of like president, chief financial wrangler, uh, and uh, they went through a situation, I hope, where, um, you know, they were they were already uh, essentially illegal, but they were in the gray zone, and the city of Oakland did not wish to evict them or anything like that. Um, but they bought, they bought their land, they, they had loans, and then... As they uh, were trying to start to pay off the big loan, one of their members got really uh, basically reported them, <laughs> reported the community uh, to code enforcement. Yeah. And this was right. after the – so she chose to to basically – and initiated a 300 – what ended up being about $300,000 worth of fines oh. and fixes – all of which, at the end of the day, at a certain point, threatened to have the community, the, the mortgage holder, uh, in a side move, uh, was like ready to foreclose on them. Wow. Right. So we're talking existential threat to the community itself. And yeah. I think a lot of times all that needs to happen is, you know, when someone's really, really out there and can't manage themselves, uh, and a good faith effort uh, to not be assholes as the board or whatever. You know, there, there's a place where you have to ask people to leave, and that's usually sufficient. And if not, you pay them to leave. So in the end of the day, Shade Tree paid this particular person who had already cost them, you know, so much money uh, to leave so that they could they could not meet her standards, her need for rodent control, you know. And instead of working you know, for the betterment of the whole, which was trying to improve things, she was ready to yeah. take it down. And that is what, that, but most people will not take it, want to take it down. It's just there has to be another group of people that recognize where this could go, you know, and wow. I, I don't that know. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> I've, I've had similar dynamics in both communities and, uh, wow. It, what, do you know roughly how much, uh, what the going rate is to pay someone <laughs> to leave and, oh, and the timeline oh, as well. Uh, uh, well, I will just say, you know, in Berkeley, where there's tenant landlord, you know, rent control, uh, yeah. landlords have been held hostage by yeah. tenants, so it could be forty thousand dollars in these communities. Uh, in these, but you know, that's a very different. Those are permanent legal structures. Uh, even right. more. I mean, I knew someone who, you know, was a subletter, and they, they wanted like a, they wanted a, 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 like half the sale price or something of their unit. You know. Uh, anyway, so it's it's opportunistic. Both many people can be opportun, but that wasn't what this was exactly. It was more like I have myself, I have my need, but it's turned into an obsessive. I'm going to get it at all cost, and, and if I can't right. get what I need, I'm going to make life miserable for everyone around me. And I, I, 
I don't I don't know. I I mean it's much less. I know in the community where I used to live, I think it was five thousand or ten thousand dollars. Wow. I think it was five thousand dollars. It was just a ten unit cooperative. You know, so it didn't like have deep pockets or anything, and certainly Shade Tree did not have deep pockets. So, yeah. you know, but in other cases, there's like a whole lawsuit. You know, I know of a situation, you know, and uh, where I know of two other situations where lawsuits were filed uh, because uh, by a tenant, by a member of a cooperative, or by a resident of a self-governing, you know building and uh and uh you know at least in one case the, the the person who um had challenged the board and there were for rightful reasons at one level are we getting um, you know it had to do with earthquake safety uh but that person just couldn't you know the, those relationships were never going to be restored so he he and he and his wife left so it wasn't like the community paid him to leave but, you know, they paid it in the form of a lawsuit. And it wasn't like I think that board was completely innocent. But on the other hand, you have personality styles that are like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to wrestle you to the mat and put a knife against your throat to get you to pay attention to me the way I want you to pay attention. You know, and he wasn't self. Right. you know, it's conflicts can happen on both sides of the powers power equation where nobody feels empowered and and nobody yeah so evictions uh what do you call those restraining orders that that was you know i personally had a a boyfriend that i had to threaten with a restraining order but it took me four months to realize i could do that i was just arguing with him because you know you should see it my way (laughs) so sometimes we have to have authority outside of our own community which is one reason why having a legally sanctioned tiny home village, you know, yeah. with the ability to call the cops. I'm, I'm not 100% anarchist. I, I think they have a role, but obviously yeah. it can be very, very traumatic, you know. So yeah. I think a group mind can be very wise and supportive. And even someone like you who's such a, you know, willing to step up as an entrepreneur, innovator, leader, you know, it's not like you're looking to be a power monger. <laughs> no, and I've been I've been actively trying to figure out how to get out of this situation that I'm in because I really feel trapped. Like oh. I don't. Like, oh wow. I, I, I was talking to Tim uh, Anderson who just shut down his uh, yeah in Alameda. Yeah. And he was like, "Oh man, you should shut it down. It's just I feel so great and clean and clear." And, yeah. You know, his, his his community sprouted off into. Three other communities. Oh, three! Beautiful. I know two yeah. of them. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, he was really making a good point, and honestly, I was I was really convinced a couple, maybe two weeks ago, when he was on the phone with me about it, that maybe I was looking at shutting it down. But then I'm like, you know, then I'm going to affect a couple people's lives because we're we're lower numbers right now. And there's there was one person that was just really looking at me like a. Uh, really framing me as a slumlord and I wasn't meeting her standard and I, you know, there's no way I could given the context of what yeah. it was, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a place, it's an off grid place to park your, your trailer. And so it's just not, not going to meet those standards. That's right. And, uh, I just felt trapped. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I still do, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, uh, I was talking to, 
Luke, uh, well, was, there's a warehouse community, and yep. I was talking to the manager there, and she was saying, yeah, well, I, I have to kick out people quite often, and mm. uh, I just, I called, I get my lease, and I get, get everything in order, and then I call the cops, and they, I'll escort them out, and so I had a situation like that uh, a couple months ago, and I didn't call the cops, but the guy called the cops on me. Yeah. And I and I yeah. and I brought my and I brought my lease out and my hands, you know, where yep. where they could see him. And they were like, "Well, this is you know, this is a civil matter. You got to go through the eviction process. We don't know what to tell you." And the guy actually called the cops twice more on me. Wow. Uh, as a way to retaliate against me for giving him a legal notice that said that I could. Uh, you know, initiate a tow if he didn't move out because he was, you know, a month and a half into basically squatting without paying and right uh, and all that. And was Have he using the COVID eviction moratorium? What's that? Was he using the COVID eviction moratorium? He oh. said he said he was going to leave, and oh. you know, it had been weeks, weeks. You know, I'm going to leave next week, and then you know, it's Got a it. month and a half later. Got it. So. Um, I didn't know what he was trying to pull, but it was just a really toxic yeah. situation. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, have you seen any sort of like agreements that can be signed that are legally binding ahead of time where basically like I tried to shove that into the agreement that he signed even that says like, you know, if you're asked to leave, you this can be you can you, should, you agree to by signing this, you agree to leave within 30 days you get 30 days this can be broken by either side within 30 days but uh but well, then, i don't know i got some pushback when i was talking to a lawyer who said like well you know if it's not legal you can't enforce you, you, you can't enforce yeah, so illegal yeah well yeah. i i'm gonna step back and say uh you know yeah, any legal agreement is only relevant if people care about the legal consequences, which take a long time, you know, often. I mean, you could you could try to retaliate quid pro quo with a restraining order, but honestly, I, I want to talk a little more like um, giving, he's offered to leave, which is a good sign, so he knows it's not working, and maybe this is a matter of uh, asking everyone and this is scary for a lot of people, create one of those uh, justice, restorative justice circles. And there's a whole ritual for passing a walking stick. And there's a whole process. You you could get some kids from a Kleinman's high school <laughs> and our joy to facilitate, you know, if, if necessary, you know, or maybe yeah. church ladies or whatever. But there's a whole various community of people who are practiced in this skill which is yeah. a collective uh, circle of people holding both parties. Uh, usually there's a clear grieved party and, you know, like it's a criminal used as a, you know, for like, not criminal justice, but an alternative to criminal justice among youth. Right. But the idea... What harm, what harm is committed? Yeah, and right. everyone in right. the circle can speak to the harm that's been committed and also the importance of each party to them. Um, yeah. And I, you know, it's it's a container. Not everyone can do it. I imagine there's some people who would run away screaming, but they're, they're clearly then... Uh, I think there's something powerful about sitting in a circle yeah. and hearing... Not just from you, who's somehow the designated conflict 
enforcer, avoider, you know, you're like the conflict manager in chief. There's something about that whereby there's going to be someone in that circle who will step up and speak for, you know, in a compassionate way for whoever's causing damage. And I think that's an important part for them to be held accountable, not just be blamed in a giant like scapegoating. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's, that I just want to say there's some other dynamic that can tap into another part of our brain. Um, yeah. 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 yeah no, I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I definitely, I, I went to the seeds mediation uh, training like two or three years ago and learned about that and have been trying to get uh, some of those organizations uh, attention mm. or something out. Mm. I haven't, I haven't figured out how to do that or, but I do like the idea of like a high schooler who's been trained in that and like giving them like, you know, 50 bucks or something or a hundred bucks to come and lead a circle every once in a while. That's yeah. Nice. That would be cool. Some of uh, Sally's youth leaders, I mean, they're like in their mid twenties now, so we're talking mature young men. Um, but I've seen some skilled mediation. I mean, the thing is everyone in the circle has to be willing to respect right. the process and and it's not just one person laying down their will and rules. Everyone in the circle has to agree, for example, to the ground rules about how they're going to speak to each other and how the stick is used. So I, I do believe that those processes are powerful. Of course, you know, we're not socialized to necessarily respect peer circles, but I, I think that's more common, you know, maybe with your generation than my generation. <laughs> Yeah, where where the yeah, there's some cultural shifts yeah. and the the hippies, not the hippies per se, but there was a well now I'm getting sociology sociological and I don't want to go there, yeah. but I'm so excited to have this talk, Adam. <laughs> it's yeah, great. Me too. Me too. We gotta do it many more times. You gotta yes, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Take, Take care. care. Yep. Bye bye. If you've got ADU or tiny home questions. Give me a shout at tinylogic.ninja.